You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church in Lumberton, North Carolina. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Turn to Revelation chapter 19. If you're a guest with us today, we're glad that you're here. Um, we're, we're glad that uh, you chose to take part of your morning and be with us this morning. And as I look out across this room, I see a lot of familiar faces and some that I'm not familiar with, and I'm glad that you're here. Uh, at the end of the service, I'd love to take a moment, get to know you. If you're brand new today, just exchange names. There's all kinds of information back there in the back that if, if our church can serve you in any way, we, we'd love to do that. Uh, just take our information before you go, and we can follow up in the weeks ahead. Revelation 19, if, if you're new to our church or you haven't been here in a while, we've been walking through the book of Revelation, well, some in the congregation would say a very long time. Uh, so uh, we're going to continue in that today. And you may be thinking, how in the world uh, are we going to be able to talk about Resurrection Sunday out of Revelation 19? Well, hold on. We'll get there in just a moment. So Revelation 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems or crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped with blood, or dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword and with and which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beasts and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and, and the false prophet who in his presence had done signs which deceived those who had received the mark and the beast who had worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with fire and sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Father, again, we pause and we ask you that you would guide us in your word. May the words of our mouth and meditations of our heart be acceptable unto you, our King and our Savior. Amen. You may have been to big plays or big productions. And, and there's that point in the play where you know it's not the end of the play. They have this intermission, you, you know there's more to come, but usually at that point intermission, there's part of the storyline that kind of moves forward, and then all of a sudden they say, okay, it's time for intermission, 20 minutes, you know, go use the restroom, get something to eat, take a break, but you know to go back into the facility because you know that the final curtain has not fallen yet. You know that the rest of the story is coming, and you wouldn't want to leave at intermission. You wouldn't want to just walk away from that because you want to know how the story ends, well, as we celebrate this morning the story of what happened on that Sunday morning so many years ago, let me walk you through some of the story. 
Because when we read the Gospels, when we, meet, when we read the three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then we compare that to John's Gospel, sometimes people will uh, give the opinion that the Bible contradicts itself. That when you read Mark's account versus John's account, it seems as though you're reading two different stories. The accounts of who saw the tomb first, who got there first, the, the idea of, of the, of the storyline of events, it can get a little confusing. So while I don't have all the time in the world to clarify all, I just want to clarify the first part, the very first things that happened early on that Sunday morning. So what I want you to do is just in your mind's eye, imagine, imagine this story as it plays out. So early in the morning, Mary Magdalene and some other women had made a commitment to go to the tomb and to finish the preparations of Jesus' body. Now, the reason that they did this or the reason they needed to do this is that because when Jesus' body was taken off the cross after he had died, they started making the preparations, but then the Sabbath began. And because of the Sabbath law and the Sabbath requirements, they could not fulfill all the obligations of preparing the body, especially the body of their teacher, their rabbi, their king, their savior. So in the middle of all of their mourning, in the middle of all the pain that they're in, on that Sunday morning, Mary and some other women get together, and they're going to go to the tomb. Now, at this same time, the disciples have all scattered. They're all scared to death that, that the next thing that the Romans and the Jews are going to do is hunt every one of them down and put them to death. These women, in, in incredible courage and incredible bravery, begin to leave their town and go to where the tomb is. But what's interesting is, is Mary Magdalene begins to walk ahead of the other women, in a very fast pace. And she, she gets to the tomb first. Now, as they're going there, an earthquake happens. The ground begins to shake. By the time Mary Magdalene gets there, she gets there first. This woman that, that Jesus had cast the demons out of is the first person to see the tomb empty. She gets there. The stone has been removed. The soldiers are nowhere to be found. During that earthquake, the stone moves back. The, the soldiers kind of fell out. Eventually, they gather themselves and go and tell their authorities that the body is missing. And they begin to concoct a plan on how to deceive the world to say the disciples stole his body. Mary Magdalene gets there. She sees the tomb empty. She has no idea what has happened. Remember, even the disciples were not expecting a resurrection. Even though Jesus had told them that's what they should expect. Mary Magdalene, his heart's broken. The tomb's been disturbed. So the only thing she knows to do is to run and try to find answers. And you know where she goes? To the house where John and Peter are staying. And she runs to the house. She bangs on the door. John and Peter come to the door. And Mary Magdalene says to John and Peter, something's wrong at the tomb. The stone has been rolled away. The seal has been broken. And the body is missing. Well, Peter and John, at that moment, they weren't expecting a resurrection. They're simply concerned about what has happened at the tomb. So they begin to run back to the tomb. Now, what's interesting about John's gospel is how that kind of in a sideways kind of way, he, he kind of brags. John says, as they were running back, John gives the account that, that the one who Jesus loved got there first. You know who that was? That was John. John's kind of bragging in that moment about how he outran Peter to the tomb. It's a little side note, but I think it's really cool that John put that in there. John, being younger than Peter, outruns Peter to the tomb. John gets there first. He looks in. The tomb is empty, but he does not go in 
to the tomb. As a Jewish man, that would be something that you would not do. You would not go into a tomb where a dead body had been. But he looks in, he sees that, that there's no body there. Peter is running so hard, he can't stop. He just runs straight into the tomb. He gets in there, and here's what he finds. He finds the grave clothes that Jesus had been wrapped in, in place. And then at the end where his head was laying, Jesus, someone, somehow, they had taken the cloth off of Jesus' face, folded it up, and laid it in place. John, as he's looking in where Peter's standing, the Bible tells us that John is the first one to believe, even though he hadn't seen Jesus alive yet. John was the first one to believe that Jesus had resurrected, even though he had not seen Jesus alive. Now, this starts a whole series of events happening. Mary Magdalene would eventually make herself make her way back to the tomb and would have an interaction with the resurrected Jesus there at the tomb. Eventually, Peter and John would make their way back to an upper room where the disciples would gather, and they would begin proclaiming that, that Jesus is, in fact, alive. And then, of course, Jesus appears in that upper room, and they could see the scars in his hand, in his head. They could see the scar on his side. They saw him die. Jesus was graveyard dead when they took his body off that cross. When they placed him in that tomb, Jesus was graveyard dead. But yet, the only explanation they've got is that Jesus is in fact alive. And now as he's standing in the room with them, there's no doubt. Now when you, when you look at the story of Jesus, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the next thing that happens is he's he is this spend, going to spend the next 40 days with his disciples. Many are going to see him alive. In fact, at one point on a mountain, 500 people are going to see Jesus Christ alive. He's going to tell them that they are to go to Jerusalem, go in the upper room, and that they are going to wait there for the Holy Spirit to come. And they would wait another 10 days for that to happen. But Jesus is standing on this hillside, and all these people have gathered around. And Jesus looks at them and he says, I've got work for you to do. I want you to go into all the world. I want you to start in Jerusalem. Then I want you to go to Judea, Samaria, and then all over the world. And I want you to tell people who I am. I want you to tell them what you've seen. I want you to tell them how they've changed your life. In other words, I want you to be my witnesses. And then all of a sudden, the gravity that was holding Jesus to the planet turns loose. And Jesus, without any rocket engines or wings or the assistance of any angels, right in front of all these people, Jesus begins to ascend. And I would imagine on that hillside, you could have heard a pin drop. In that moment, Jesus is ascending in the clouds, and all the disciples are standing there watching him go up. Now remember, they've just been told, go and tell people about me. Jesus ascends in the clouds, he disappears. <laughs> I love this moment. All the disciples are just standing there looking up. Nobody's moving, nobody's talking. They're just all looking up. And about that time, two angels appear. I, in my mind's eye, this is just what I've seen in my head. I, it's not what's necessarily in Scripture, but, but what's said is in Scripture. But how this plays out is not necessarily, this is what I see in my, in my imagination. I imagine that these two angels show up and they're just standing there on that hillside looking at all these people standing there staring up in the sky. These angels are kind of being patient. They're looking around like, hey, did you, did you hear what he said 
before he ascended? Did you hear this? So finally, these, these angels look at the disciples and go, hey, this is my words, not in the Bible. Wake up. He said, go make disciples. Go be witnesses. That's not going to happen up here on this mountain. You've got to go back down in the valley. You've got to go back down to your homes. You've got to go back down to your communities and tell people about what you've seen and what you've experienced. And oh, by the way, men and women, let me also tell you something very important. This same Jesus that you've seen go up in the clouds, get this, the angels say, he's going to come back in like manner. And then in that moment on Acts chapter 1, verse 11, here's what we learn. We learn that as beautiful and as powerful as the resurrection was and as beautiful as powerful as those days that he spent with the disciples and as beautiful and as powerful as that ascension was, get this, that was not the closing act. That was not the, that was not the curtain drop. That was not the mic drop moment. That was just one part of the grand story of God. And we have a whole nother story coming. We have the final event. And guess what we find in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 and following? We find the final curtain being drawn. So this morning, what I want to look at is this final moment. This is the moment that the disciples have been longing for. This is the moment of all martyrs, all people of faith have been waiting for, that all the wrongs will be made right. We, we've been walking through the book of Revelation now for many weeks, and we've seen the judgment, and we've seen what God has done. Now we come to this final moment. So in verse 11, John says, he saw the heaven opened up, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. We're going to see six names listed in this text in reference to Jesus. Five of them are recorded. One of them is unknown. Last week we saw where the church, all those who put their faith in Jesus, is gathered together in this one moment called the marriage supper. We talked about how that Jesus is the groom, the church is the bride. There's going to be this moment where we gather around a banquet table. And I've been thinking all week about that. That in that moment in heaven, we're going to be gathered together as his followers. And there's going to be moments I'm going to look across that banquet table and I'm going to see some of you there. And we're going to smile and our eyes are going to lock and we're going to remember about our time here together. And we're going to celebrate in that moment that, that Jesus is bringing all things to completion, but yet there's still something yet to be done. Because on earth at that moment, on earth, the armies of this world are gathering together in a place called the Valley of Megiddo. Because they think they still have a shot, a shot at winning this battle. So remember, you have the Antichrist who is, who is being empowered by Satan. He has brought together all the nations of the world. And people are worshiping him as a god. He has a false prophet who can do miracles in, in the name of the Antichrist. And people are falling at his feet and they're worshiping him. So they have gathered together in this place, in this valley called Megiddo. And they have every war machine that the world has to offer at this point in the future, and they believe that they are going to be able to overthrow God. But then John sees this white horse, and seated on that white horse is none other than Jesus Christ the righteous. He is called faithful and true. Why is he called that? And read on. It says, in righteousness he judges and makes war. In righteousness this king is going to come, and he is going to render absolute justice on all those who have not only opposed him, but have killed his people in cold blood. 
He is, he is called faithful and true because every promise that he's ever made, he is going to fulfill. If you remember all those many chapters back when we talked about those martyrs, those people who had been killed for their faith, gathered around God's throne, and they were calling out for justice. They were looking forward to this day, this moment. Verse 12, his eyes are like the flame of fire, and on his head are many crowns, or many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. There's some name of this king, of Jesus, that will be revealed at that time. But no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And I was thinking, whose blood is on his robe? You have this stark contrast of this white horse, and he has on a garment that has been stained with blood. Well, it could be the blood that he shed. It could be the blood that made it possible for us to be redeemed and reconciled to God. It could be the blood that he shed that that allowed us to be forgiven of all of our sins and our brokenness. It could be the blood of the saints who've been killed by this system of evil. It could be that that blood that is on his garment represents the blood that is about to be shed in this valley, in this battle. It says his, he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by his name, which he is called the word of God, in that phrase, we go back to John chapter 1. You don't have to turn back there, but the gospel writer John, who wrote the book of Revelation, as it was revealed to him by God, in that opening chapter in the gospel of John, John says that Jesus Christ is the Word. The Greek word behind that is this word called logos. And it means that, that Jesus is the epitome of all things that we know and can be known. That, that Jesus is truth, absolute truth, with flesh on and the word logos, after John used it in, in his gospel, and he uses it here, that word in Greek philosophy took on a whole different meaning from that point on. He is the word of God, and the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, wide and pure, following him on white horses. You know who that is? You know, you know who is going to be following Jesus on white horses during this great moment in history? Well, lo and behold, it's going to be you and I, every one of us who put our faith in Jesus. And I wish I could tell you that brings me a lot of comfort, but it doesn't. Here's why. I am not a fan of horses. Never have been. And there's a reason for that. Um, our oldest daughter, Hannah, when she was growing up, loved horses. And we would go, we'd take her, and she would ride a horse, and I'd stay on, I'd keep my feet on the ground. And I know that some of y'all have horses great and wonderful, but don't expect me to be saddling up anytime soon. Matter of fact, I'm going to have to save up every bit of courage I can for this day, okay? When I was a child, about eight years old, me and my, my friend uh, was at a horse stable, and we were feeding the horse some apples. This morning, I said we were feeding him apples, and I think they thought I meant we were feeding my buddy apples. No, we were feeding the horse apples. And for whatever reason, the horse was very friendly or seemed to be, but for whatever reason, the horse reached down and bit my buddy on the shoulder and picked him up and ripped out most of his muscle on top of his shoulder. I mean, it really hurt him bad blood everywhere. And at eight years old, that was a huge deal for me. It scared me to death. And to this day, to this day, I have never thrown a leg over a horse and don't plan to. But Jesus says I am going to. <laughs> so I'm in conflict, folks. What do I do here? I'm in great conflict. Well, thankfully, I'll have a new body and everything will be made new and we're going to be good to go. I'll ride that horse as long as Jesus is leading this parade. I'll be on that horse. Our eyes are going to meet on that day too, and you're going to laugh. I know you will. 
You're going to remember this. All those who've been born again, all those who have been reconciled to the Father, we're going to mount white horses. I wonder if, we don't know when the marriage supper of the Lamb is. We, we don't know when that is. We just know it's somewhere between the church being taken out and this great tribulation period. But if, if it flows like we see in the text, I wonder if we're sitting around that marriage supper of the Lamb and Jesus stands up and when we're having a party, we're laughing, we're filled with joy, and Jesus steps up and says, okay, everybody follow me. And we look off in the distance of heaven there and all these white horses have been gathered together. He says, okay, it's time to mount up. It's time to ride. The king is getting ready to ride and you get to ride with me. So we all mount up on our horses. I'm not going to be picking up a sword because I won't need one. Not going to need one. Jesus in his grace is just going to let me ride in this great victory, in this great moment of his glory and his power, not because I'm good, not because I went to church, not because I put some money in an offering plate, but because I've been redeemed through his blood. And because of that, he's a good father, he's a good king, and that king's going to say, look, you're not going to have to fight. Become, I want you to see this. I want you to be part of it. Hallelujah. So I'll throw a leg across that horse, and we're going to ride. Down on this planet in the valley of Megiddo, the Battle of Armageddon, you've heard it talked about. Maybe you've read it in a comic book, heard it mentioned in a movie, right? It comes from the Bible. And it's going to be this moment where in this valley that is 120, 30 miles long, 60 to 80 miles wide. It's a literal place. You can look it up on, on Google. You can do a Google map, and you can look at it. There's pictures of it everywhere. In this great valley, there's been many great battles in history that have been fought there. And this last great battle in that valley, the Antichrist has gathered all of the armies, all of the forces under his control. And get this, they brought all of their weapons of war. They brought their nuclear warheads. They brought their missiles. They brought their guns. They brought their tanks. Everything that's still yet in the future to be devised as far as weapons of war, it's all going to be there. And it's all going to be lined up. And there's going to be millions of people in that valley who have, well, have opposed Christ, and have opposed God, and have rejected him, and get this, hate him with a passion. And they're going to be arrayed, and they're going to be ready for war, and they actually believe, they actually believe that they have a chance. They actually believe, after all that they've experienced in this tribulation time, that they are somehow going to be able to bring some kind of offense against the God who spoke the universe into existence. Isn't that foolish? But listen, folks, that's where disobedience takes you. When you reject Christ and you reject God and you reject the gospel and you reject the truth, let me tell you where it takes you. It takes you down a path of foolishness. And some of the things you never thought you would believe, you believe. And these folks who are there in that valley, they have seen the power of God over and over again, and yet they reject him. And about that time, there's going to be a peeling back of the clouds. I don't know how. The Bible doesn't tell us. But the Bible says the clouds are going to be peeled back and and if you're standing there and you're looking up, you're going to see Jesus riding that white horse and behind him, literally millions of horses with him. But all these people, his family, his brothers and sisters, those he died to save are riding with him. Notice what it says here. Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword and he will strike down the nations. Jump down to verse 19. Look at this. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. So again, imagine in your mind's eye, you have all of the human race that is left 
who've rejected God, and they're lined up in battle formation. Standing out in front of this great vast army is none other than the Antichrist himself and the false prophet. Jesus parts the sky, and we ride down with him. And over on the other side of this valley is all these white horses and these myriads of people, every ethnicity, every tongue, every background, saved from all corners of the world, world, there with Jesus. And Jesus is out front. And just like all those battle scenes you've seen in the movies where there's that moment in time where there's that stare down between this force and this force, the forces of evil and the forces of good, there's going to be that moment where Jesus' eyes meets the Antichrist across that field. Jesus feet on this planet for the first time since he ascended back to the Father. And he's on a horse, and he looks across, and you know who he sees? He sees the Antichrist, the one who has killed his brothers and sisters, the ones he has has led to mock Jesus, the ones that have arrayed themselves against him. And I have to think, and again, the Bible doesn't tell us how he does this, but he dismounts the horse. Notice this, verse 20. And I think Jesus does it. It doesn't tell us if angels do it, but I think Jesus does this. Verse 20, and the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who was in his presence, who had done the signs which had deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. So standing out in front of this great, vast army is their leaders, the Antichrist, whom they believe is God, whom they have bowed down and worshiped, who, who was killed but yet came back to life. We saw that a few weeks ago. The false prophet who can work signs and wonders, miracles. The whole world has fallen at their feet. They believe he's God, and they believe that he's going to lead them to victory. The Bible doesn't tell us, but I have to think that Jesus is the one who does it. Jesus gets off that white horse. He walks across that battlefield. He looks the Antichrist and the false prophet right in the face, and he grabs them by the shirt. And he drags them over here and he opens up the lake of fire and he throws them in personally alive into the lake of fire. Now what do you think the rest of that army's thinking at that moment? If that's our God, if that's the one we worship, if that's the one that's going to bring victory, he had nothing to offer. As I said last week, he wrote a cat, he wrote a check he can't cash. And Jesus has just destroyed him in real time, in a matter of seconds. And then Jesus turns and he looks at those armies who have killed his people, who have mocked his name. And the Bible says that a sword from his mouth devours them. Does John see a sword, literal sword, come out of his mouth? No. Here's what I think is happening. In Psalm 33, we see that God the Creator spoke the universe into existence. By the words of His mouth, He created the earth, He created the sun, He created all the galaxies and the trillions of stars and planets. God spoke and it became reality. God spoke and He placed the oceans. God spoke and He placed the mountains. The Bible says that Jesus also was part of that creative event. That Jesus, in uh, in Colossians chapter 1, says that all things were made by Him, through Him, for Him. And that he holds all things together? Jesus is going to speak the words. And this army is going to fall. No, it's not going to take hours. It's not going to take me pulling a sword and joining him. It's not going to be like the battles you've seen with Braveheart, where there's swords flying and shields being broken. No, simply Jesus will speak the word. 
and they'll be slaughtered. Now, if this is your first time hearing about this, if, you, if this, is, this is your first time maybe even being in a church or coming to a worship service, you may begin to wrestle with this and go, wait a minute, that's not the Jesus that I see depicted in culture, right? The Jesus I see, he's holding the lamb and he's petting the lamb, right? Or this other picture I saw, you know, you've got Jesus, got some kids sitting on his lap and you know, I've heard that Jesus is, it was the most loving person that ever lived and and that, that Jesus is going to give you all kinds of opportunities and that, that Jesus is just going to wink his eye at whatever things you've done wrong and, and that when it's all said and done, we're all going to be gathered together in this utopian universe that maybe some God out there is prepared. But, but the reality is, is that the Jesus you've heard about in culture, the Jesus you've heard about is just a simply benevolent, loving kind of old guy who just loves everybody and never says anything wrong. If that's your concept of Jesus, it's not the Jesus that I read about in the New Testament. The Jesus that I read about in the New Testament, yes, he is loving. Yes, he is grace-filled. Yes, he is extending an opportunity for your life to be changed. But I want you to understand something. There comes a day, there is coming a day when that grace will no longer be extended. Time will no longer go on. There will be a day where you'll be held accountable for him to be righteous and just, for him to be who he says he is. This day has to come. And folks, this is when the curtains will close. This will be the end of all things. And depending on what you have, where you have put your faith, will depend on whether you're riding one of those white horses or whether you're on the other side. In the weeks ahead, we're going to talk about that moment when Jesus brings the whole world of all time and space together. And he's going to divide them into two groups. Only two. Those who put their faith in Jesus, those who've rejected him. We'll see that in the coming weeks. But in this closing, I want, to, I want to read this paragraph of someone who wrote this back in the 1800s and I think it's very fitting. So listen to what this writer says, this anonymous writer about Jesus that I think we need to think about as we leave today. Quote, more than 1,900 years ago, there was a man born contrary to the laws of life. This man lived in poverty and was reared in obscurity. He did not travel extensively. Only once did he cross the boundary of the country in which he lived. That he was during, and that was during his exile in childhood. He possessed neither wealth nor influence. His relatives were inconspicuous, and they had neither training nor formal education. In infancy, he startled a king. In childhood, he puzzled doctors. In manhood, he ruled the course of nature. He even walked upon the billows of the waves of water as if it were pavement. And he hushed the sea to sleep. He healed the multitudes without medicine and made no charge for his service. He never wrote a book, and yet all the libraries of the country could not hold the books that have been written about him. He never wrote a song. And yet he has furnished the theme for more than all the songwriters combined. He never founded a college, but all the schools put together cannot boast of having as many students. He never marshaled an army, nor drafted a soldier, nor fired a gun. And yet no leader ever has had more volunteers who have, under his orders, made more rebels stack up their arms and surrender without a shot fired. He never practiced medicine, Yet he has healed more broken hearts than all the doctors far and near. The names of the past proud statesmen of Greece and Rome have come and gone. 
The names of the past scientists, philosophers, theologians have come and gone. But the name of this man abounds more and more. Though time has spread almost 2,000 years between the people of this generation and the scene of his crucifixion, yet he lives. Herod could not destroy him. The grave could not hold him. He stands forth upon the highest pinnacle of heavenly glory, proclaimed of God, acknowledged by angels, adored by saints, and feared by devils. As the living, personal Christ, our Lord and Savior. And he is coming again. Are you ready? The resurrection and the ascension was not the final scene. There is another scene coming. And what you do with Jesus today will determine where you spend eternity. I can't put it any plainer than that. And all that is required of you is to receive the gift that's been given by faith, believing that Jesus is exactly who he says he is. Are you ready? Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Hyde Park Baptist.